You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod, and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. And if you'd like to support uh, what I do here, you can become a patron at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer, where at the $1 or $2 per month level, you get access to a backlog of tons of exclusive pre-show episodes recorded exclusively for Patreon supporters spread across all three of my podcasts. And uh, additionally, at the $5 a month level, you get that plus exclusive commentary tracks and movie reaction videos. And finally, at $10 per month, you get all that plus early access to episodes and unreleased content from all of my shows. Again, that's at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. So, welcome to Anthology, again. Um, today, I'm going to be discussing The Passers-By. It's the fourth episode of The Twilight Zone's third season, and it originally aired on October 6th, 1961, and I'll be rounding out the episode with a brief review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 14, The Strange Dr. Lorenz. So, before I get into that, just some housekeeping and everything to go over. Last week's episode... The Shelter um, was recorded March 13th, and I'm recording this in advance, so this is March 14th, um, and I just want to say that I hope you guys um, didn't don't mind me working through some of the audio stuff that I'm doing with the new equipment and everything. I noticed that there were some... Um, some different levels with the uh, with the recording on that, so hopefully that wasn't too bad or anything. I believe that I fixed that issue with this one, so um, yeah, I hope you guys um, don't mind me working through that. So, as I normally do throughout the throughout throughout all of these episodes, um, I'm going to be spoiling the entirety of the passersby. So, before I get into my read, just I w- want to kind of warn you guys, I'm going to be spoiling the passersby. And, yeah, so let's just dive right in. I'm going to read the plot summary, courtesy of The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr., and here we go. Lavinia relaxes on the front porch of the remnants of what was once her house, partially scorched as a casualty of the American Civil War. A passerby known as the sergeant stops to rest a spell, striking up a friendly conversation. Day after day, she has been watching as the tired and wounded march past her residence, reminding her of the grim repercussions of the bloody war. Among the wounded is a young boy rumored to have been shot in the head and killed at Gettysburg. The man responsible for the death of her husband gives Lavinia ample opportunity to seek vengeance, but the killer passes by when she apparently misses him with a direct gunshot to the face. Eventually, the sergeant figures out why the wounded have been slowly marching down the road. They, too, are the ward's dead. Thanking her for the hospitality, the sergeant departs. Lavinia, having succumbed from a fever weeks before, will not accept the inevitable. Even her husband makes an appearance, and like the rest of the walking dead, he is driven by instinct to see what is down at the end of the road, leaving her behind. It takes the wisdom of Abraham Lincoln, the last casualty of the war, to convince her that she, too, should join those walking down the scorched road. 
The Passersby stars James Gregory as uh, the Confederate sergeant who doesn't have a name in the episode. This is his second of two Twilight Zone episodes, and this was pretty cool. His first appearance on the Twilight Zone was actually in the series premiere, Where Is Everybody? Uh, way back in season one, of course, he was one of the army um, generals at the end of the episode. So that's pretty neat. And other than that, he has appeared in, or he appeared in several Serling properties or Serling things. So um, there was an episode of Danger called uh, from 1954 called Knife in the Dark that he appeared in with the, with the teleplay by Serling. And the episode of Playhouse 90, A Town Has Turned to Dust from 1958, he appeared in that as well. And that's an episode that I reviewed in episode 45 of this podcast. And he also appeared in an episode of The Loner titled A Question of Guilt in 1966. And rounding out his Serling collaborations, James Gregory appeared in an episode of Night Gallery in the segment Stop Killing Me in 1972. Outside of collaborations with Serling, he appeared in one episode of Star Trek, and he was in the Planet of the Apes sequel, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, in 1970. And co-starring as Lavinia is Joanne Linville. This was her only episode of The Twilight Zone. However, she did appear in one episode of Star Trek, and she was in two episodes of One Step Beyond for the sci-fi anthology kind of... uh, I wouldn't say trifecta because it's just two shows. But anyway, um, yeah, so appearing as Judd in this episode is Warren J. Kemmerling. Uh, This was his only appearance on The Twilight Zone. Um, And as far as collaborations with Serling, he appeared uncredited in 1962's Incident in an Alley, which was based on a short story by Serling. And he also appeared in one episode of One Step Beyond, and he was also in uh, Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 1977, so that's pretty cool. And rounding out the cast as Abraham Lincoln is Austin Green. Um, This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, However, well, not however, but uh, in addition to many roles uh, in his career, um, uh, he also played Lincoln in an episode of Medic and in 1957's The Story of Mankind. So that's the cast and writer for this episode was Rod Serling. And this is an interesting piece of trivia about this, about this episode and about Serling writing it. So he had previously written a script called The Cause, which was about a Union soldier who was named Judd uh, returning from the Civil War and kind of shacking up with a Southern woman. They end up falling in love. And when her father returns, she has to choose between staying with Judd and staying with her family, I guess. It aired on Matinee Theater on May 12th, 1958. And I was so excited when I heard that because I was like, oh, I can I can do this as a bonus review um, instead of science fiction theater, but I can't find it anywhere. So I just have to assume that it's just been lost to time. Um, Matinee Theater, I think, was um, a daily anthology show, like live production uh, anthology show. So it's not, I mean, it's it's not a surprise that the recordings of that or what have you um, don't exist anymore if it's a daily anthology show. And uh, rounding out the cast and crew is director Elliot Silverstein. This was his second of four total Twilight Zone episodes. His previous episode was one of my personal favorites, uh, The Obsolete Man. And next we'll see from him is toward the end of this season of the show, uh, he directed The Trade-Ins, season three, episode 31. And outside of The Twilight Zone, he also directed four episodes of Tales from the Crypt. So kind of keeping that in the anthology, genre anthology family, I guess. So now with the talent rundown out of the way, I'm going to go ahead and talk about my feelings as a viewer for the passersby. 
And before I do that, obviously, what I usually do, um, what I knew before going into this episode, I did not have a clue. So this is one of those episodes of The Twilight Zone that didn't permeate pop culture references in my in my viewpoint or or in my sphere of of pop culture references um over the years so i had no clue what to expect from this episode um my kind of little blurb that i wrote as an estimation for it was maybe it's about some strangers um someone encounters each day having a bigger impact on their life than they think i was thinking in in more along the lines of maybe like a secret group pulling the strings like in the adjustment bureau um, obviously was completely off base. That was completely inaccurate, but I don't mind. So, um, yeah, those were those, that's what I knew and what I thought of beforehand. So let me go into my actual review of the passersby. So this episode opens up very clearly showing us that this is set in the civil war era and we immediately get Serling's opening narration, which I'm not going to play yet because it's a split opening narration. So I'm going to play it when he appears on screen in this review. So hold tight for the opening narration. But it's introduced as like, this is the end of the civil war. This is, we're going down the, walking down the road with all of these exhausted soldiers. And I thought that this opening scene, the, just the opening visual was incredibly evocative um it's an incredibly effective imagery in this opening scene like there's this overhead view at an angle at the at the road that all of these just visibly exhausted soldiers are walking down and the viewpoint is kind of through the brush of the trees and the camera moves and the view is obscured by a tree um, not trunk, not branch, but tree middle part. <laughs> and we, it's, it's just, it's interesting that coupled with the light fog effect, uh, with the very, um, the very, uh, uh, detailed walk effect or like the kind of just the, um, the detail in the performance of the, the people on screen that are walking because they are just shambling. It's just, it's very clear that they are extremely exhausted. And I just thought that that was just a very effective hook and everything. Now, I will say that I felt overall, and I'll get into that later, obviously, overall, I felt this episode was a, was, it's, it's not my favorite episode. It's, it's not a, it's not a particularly strong episode in the vein of Maple Street, Obsolete Man, or The Shelter, for that matter. Um, I would say, no pun intended, this is kind of a middle-of-the-road episode for me, but for reasons that I'll explain later in this review, it does get elevated to uh, certain uh, a bit at certain points. So as we watch these men walk through the, the foggy, just ominous road, we see the sergeant. Uh, he's a man with a crutch, and he is kind of just limping toward this. Um, I, 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 the best way I can describe it is a driveway, but I don't think it's a driveway. <laughs> uh, the lawn of a house, and we see a woman just kind of sitting on the porch, and he asks her if he can have some of the water that is like right nearby. And I really, again, I really like the set design of this. Like there are, there's so much, there's a lot of like trees and overgrowth. It almost feels like a swampy atmosphere. And the framing of this shot where he's asking her about getting the water is really good too. Like he is in the foreground of the shot and she is kind of at a distance on the porch in the background. And the, the kind of uh, perspective of it is cool because he is he's 
occupying um, half, if not most, of the screen, and you just kind of see her at a distance. It's just really, uh, really beautiful framing and everything. So he he we see that he has a guitar and uh he comments on the tree uh being beautiful he says the tree was beautiful once and she's very distant and she's very um what's the word i'm looking for i don't know she's she's very uh distant and not really that talkative or receptive to him talking and at that point i kind of wondered if they were on opposite sides but uh that's not the case <laughs> But again, the set design of this, the production value is just really, really incredible because the wreckage of the house is something that I didn't notice the first time around or the first couple of times watching this episode. But when you watch it and when you look at it and you look at it more with more uh, more detail, like the the house is kind of in shambles. It's in ruins. There's boards up against the wall, um, boarding up a window and everything. And you see like this... Um, not ravine but like this this um valley i guess would be the word i would describe uh, used to describe it but of of debris that just that's kind of littering the the lawn and i thought that was just really good set design and really good a really good way to evoke just the just the shambles of not only this location and the um, mental state of the passersby or anything, but um, you can kind of extrapolate that to be about the country as a whole in the aftermath of the Civil War. And so after he's gotten his water, the sergeant asks if he can kind of just sit there and, and rest for a bit. And he starts strumming his guitar. And this kind of this kind of livens her up a little bit. Um, she says that her husband used to play the guitar, and when he asks where he is, she says he died in the war. And here it's interesting. She references that he died at Yellow Tavern with General Stewart. And I'll admit, I don't know much about the Civil War, but I did read trivia saying that the, that that's a real battle, the Battle of Yellow Tavern. Um, this is what I found that I'll just read real quick from the IMDb trivia page for this episode. Um, the Battle of Yellow Tavern took place on, in May uh, 1864 near Richmond, Virginia. Union cavalry, uh, Union cavalry under Major General Phil Sheridan outnumbered and outgunned Confederate cavalry led by uh, Major General J.E.B. Stewart, who was mortally wounded and died the next day. So that's the reference there. And I just want to say just really quick, um, <laughs> there is a three-volume narrative of the Civil War written by Shelby Foote that I've been wanting to read for several years, but I never got around to it and haven't gotten around to it yet. But just that's something that you might want to check out if this subject interests you, because I've heard really great things. Apparently, it it just it goes like beat but beat for beat the entire civil war over three volumes and it it's written like a narrative so um yeah i'm i'll eventually check that out i'm sure probably we'll see (laughs) so back to the episode so after talking about her husband dying um she kind of becomes this kind of she has this kind of wistful thing where she talks about how how painful the war has been for her. She talks about how when it started, there were trumpets and drums and everyone was, was excited that, and, and talking about how they'll beat the, they'll beat the Yanks in a month and how it, it didn't work out that way, essentially. And this was, this is just, on one hand, I wonder if that's what, really what the idea of it was, like if that's how it really was um, back then at the start of the Civil War. But, um, 
this alone, this by itself, is just a really strong depiction of the pain and trauma of the Civil War in this in this scenario. It's both in the performance of Joanne Linville and in the imagery of the passersby, um, both in terms of their shambling and in the set design and everything. But this entire episode is about this... I, I don't want to say it's about the grief of a nation, but it is about the the pain of going through... Um, a traumatic civil war and how there the there's no real even I don't I'm I don't know I'm I'm stumbling here but it just it feels like it's it's in the um, aftermath of the civil war how um, draining and and heartbreaking that ordeal was for the entire country so I just thought that that was really well illustrated um, in this episode so at this point. Um, Lavinia gets up and she starts to stumble. And this is our first hint at what's to come in the episode. She gets up, starts to stumble. Uh, she references that she has a fever, but she's on the mend now. Um, but she's she's pretty weak. And um, at this point, I've, I've just got to say, again, I I don't know. I, um, <laughs> I was embarrassed to say that I didn't know what side he was on, uh, the sergeant. I didn't know if he was like a Union soldier or a Confederate soldier. Um, he's a Confederate soldier. Um, and I, I thought maybe I was just wondering if he was a Union soldier and that was going to be like a, a thing where she is there and maybe he's he's the one that killed um, her husband or something, but it doesn't go to that level. He's a Confederate soldier. Um, so yeah, so I don't know. And I also had a theory that um, <laughs> I thought that... Um, Maybe it would be that he's remorseful over a soldier that he killed and that this interaction is a figment of his imagination and that it's maybe his brain coping with that, with the things that he did during the war. But that didn't pan out either. And I'm glad that it didn't because what we got was pretty solid in terms of just uh, an overarching theme for the entire episode um, or or the overarching theme of, of Civil War aftermath, I guess. So, um, Lavinia comments on how worn and tired the passersby look, and, um, you know, in general, like, when watching this a second and third and fourth time and everything, it seems pretty obvious, like, how how it's going to go, um, but it's interesting, because I'll be injecting my different theories um, throughout this review, um, so it's just interesting to see how, and maybe it's, maybe it's a... Um, a testament to Serling's writing that when you first watch this episode, your mind is kind of working overtime, or at least mine was, uh, to try to figure out like what's going to happen or, or what the kind of big thing is, what the big hook of the episode is. And I was completely wrong. And in revisiting this episode, you see how, how tight that story is and how tight the actual narrative is leading up to the end scene and, and the revelation that they're all dead, essentially. Um, and it's not, it, it's just, it's really tight writing. And it's something that obviously three seasons into the show, we come to expect out of Serling and it's just no different here and everything. So as she's commenting on the demeanor of the Confederate soldiers or the soldiers walking, um, along the road, uh, she asks the Sergeant to play the guitar loud enough to drown out the sound of the footsteps. And there's something here that the sergeant says, come on, ma'am, you don't want... And then she cuts him off and, and kind of reasserts herself, says, like, yes, please, pl- please play and everything. And there's something about that delivery that he does of, come on, ma'am, you don't want that. Um, 
it's just something that he just seems just genuinely concerned for her mental well-being in that moment. Maybe I'm reading into it or maybe I'm putting something in there that's not, but he just he just seems very um he he seems very reluctant to to uh let her not see what's going on in her front in her front lawn and along the road in front of her house. So at this point we get the opening narration, which I will play now as it is cut through, uh, it's cut into two separate parts. This road is the afterwards of the Civil War. It began at Fort Sumter, South Carolina and ended at a place called Appomattox. It's littered with the residue of broken battles and shattered dreams. In just a moment, you will enter a strange province that knows neither north nor south, a place we call the Twilight Zone. Okay, so my immediate theory after this point in the episode was maybe he's the ghost of her husband. <laughs> and in reading my notes when I'm going through the episode again to kind of fine tune my notes when I'm making notes for the podcast, um, I had to stop here and laugh at myself because. I did not think that theory through all that well. <laughs> like, of course he's not the of course he's not the ghost of her husband cuz she would recognize him to be her husband. <laughs> like that's just that's a moronic uh theory that I had. Um so yeah, so that didn't really pan out there. So um as they're kind of lounging around or sitting around there, she sees a man that she recognizes. Uh this man named Charlie Constable, uh which also I think that that's just a really cool name, Charlie Constable. Um but uh this interaction that she has with him is incredibly disturbing and haunting. Um he she runs up to him and says like, "Oh, oh, it's Charlie. Uh we heard that you were uh shot in the head in Gettysburg." And he wasn't, um, or he was, but he wasn't. Anyway, um, when she goes up to him, he's he just has this really blank expression on his face. Um, he's like in a trance, and he doesn't even acknowledge her. And throughout most of this interaction, she uh, or he is just staring intently at the road, like ahead of the road, and he is just he's staring with this kind of look of glee on his face. Um, I can't really, I can't really do justice to the description of the facial expression of Charlie Constable in the scene because it's not really a look of glee. It's just this like glazed over, um, look of awe and wonder at, um, what's ahead of him essentially. And it's just, it is an incredibly haunting performance. And it's not until she, I think she puts his ha- her hand on his face that he turns and actually acknowledges her and sees her. And at this point, like, it's pretty clear the passersby are ghosts. Um, like, it's just, it's pretty obvious at this point that that's what's going on, essentially. And it's just such a haunting prospect, uh, given the setting of the episode, the the time, the time, uh, time frame of the episode, essentially. And it's just, it's really haunting. And something that the actor who plays Charlie does is he takes off his, like, bedroll and his pack. And while he's doing that, he doesn't break eye contact with the road. Not immediately, at least, like I said. And like I said, he has that wistful glow of empty happiness on his face. And it's just, it is so, it's interesting because I found it to be particularly disturbing. Like, like kind of haunting and almost to the level of being scary. Even though I, I think that that's counterintuitive to what the actual... Um, episode is trying to showcase for that because it's not necessarily 
a haunting thing. It's, I mean, it is a haunting thing, but it's not like a terror thing because it's, it's, you know, people that are, have passed on are moving on to the next stage of their existence and everything. And it's supposed to be, I guess, kind of an optimistic viewpoint, I think. Um, so anyway, as Charlie leaves the scene, um, Lavinia notices that he has, that there's blood on his cap that she has in, in her hand. And so this is where it kind of, I mean, it lays it pretty thick that, yes, they are ghosts. They are the casualties of the Civil War. And, uh, but even that, even the kind of um, obviousness of that or the, or the seeming, seeming confirmation of that this early in the episode does not detract from the sentiment of what's to come and everything. It's just, it's like I said before, it is a, it is a very, very, um, tight script and very uh, just beautifully told story. And there's a certain poetry to it um, that I'll talk about here in a bit that is just so evocative of a certain sentiment of, of pain and sorrow and um, pain and sorrow <laughs> of the time. And so, yeah, so at this point, the sergeant, we get kind of a scene with the sergeant talking about his dad and his childhood. And this... I mean, this, I, I don't know, this, this scene kind of felt a little bit like padding just a little bit. Um, he's, he's sharing a somewhat unhappy memory, but he does it with this kind of laughing glee that he has, like this general warmth that he says in this, in this delivery of t- telling or talking about how his father saw him as soft and <laughs> wanted him to toughen up and everything and wanted him to be a man and all that. And he's saying this, but he's saying it like it's a fond memory. And it's a weird, like anachronistic thing for him to do in this, um, in this scene. But it also doesn't really seem to inform that much in, in, in terms of really anything in the episode for me. Um, maybe it's to make it more tragic that he's dead. Um, but I, I don't know. Um, or maybe it's just to show the, uh, how widespread the the war was, how it's just people that wouldn't probably wouldn't have been in war or enlisted for a cause were in it. I don't know. Maybe I'm reaching there, but it just, this just felt kind of like a little, I don't know. It felt, it felt a little um, unimportant in the grand scheme of things. So as he's talking, or I'm sorry, as he's, he, he starts singing and everything, he kind of takes on this kind of tone of, of like he's serenading her a little bit and that's kind of doubled down a little bit or or it's maybe not confirmed but it's interesting because she says that Judd her husband used to sing that same song that he sings um which uh the song I think is black is the color of my true love's hair and uh uh, that, that song was in the public domain from the trivia that I read so that's why it was used in the episode but anyway um, I've got to, I've got to admit something embarrassing because in my notes for, for my first viewing, my notes doubled down on like my bonehead theory. I put in my notes, he's totally her husband's ghost. And, uh, I think the fact that he was singing black is the color of my true love's hair, just like the, the lyrics of that made me think that maybe he was the ghost of her husband. But again, it would have made no sense. Like, I don't know why I was so married to that, uh, theory on that first viewing. Um, so now it's Lavinia's turn to kind of reminisce about, uh, her life before the war. And this, that's something that I find really 
interesting about the structure of this episode or of the of the script of this episode is that there's like this back and forth between Lavinia and the sergeant. And I'll talk more about that when we get to the scene with the with the silhouetted soldier. But like uh, we just had a scene with the sergeant talking about his past. And now we have a scene of Lavinia reminiscing about how beautiful and peaceful her home was before the war. And this also, like, like she's saying all of these just beautiful, she's uh, recounting all this beautiful imagery of the land that she occupied before the war. And then she breaks out and says, then the Yankees came, blue locusts had to eat away the trees, the land and everything on it. And at this point, I'm just realizing that this episode lives in a state of such despair and pain and that the poetry of that despair really is is really at its core it's what makes this episode for me it's what makes this episode elevate past just kind of a middle of the road no pun intended episode of the twilight zone into maybe not maybe not upper tier but it it does make it stand out of the pack of the kind of average episodes that i've seen and again just the poetry of that despair is written so beautifully like her describing the the union soldiers as blue locusts eating away the trees and the land and everything is just so hauntingly beautiful and it's also setting up her vengeful state of mind toward the union army so she goes on to say that she blames the union army for uh, what's happened to her land the trees and everything that was including my husband's life and that's when we realize that she plans on killing a a a union soldier and um the sergeant asks well why don't you just leave and she says this is all that i have and that's such a painful a painful sentiment in an already painful um soliloquy if you will um that this is literally like the land that she occupies and the home that she has that's already been ravaged by war is all that she has in the world. And because her husband is gone and everything, it's literally all that she has in 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 the world. And that's just it's heartbreaking and it's it's really beautifully subtle in its depiction in this episode. So she she starts to kind of ponder and she asks what he what the sergeant thinks happened to the Yankee who killed her husband. And at this point, again, um, a little bit uh, embarrassing because at this point in my first viewing, I could not, I still could not understand if he was a Union soldier or a Confederate soldier. (laughs) And um, I started to think, okay, well, maybe he's not the ghost of her husband. Maybe he's the man who killed her husband. And uh, yeah, I was into that. I, I was probably into that more than the bonehead theory of her being him being the ghost of her husband. But um, either way, it didn't pan out. And I do like the way that the episode ends up, as I'll get to in a bit. But he does respond to her and say, if you let that kind of poison sit on your mind, you'll die from it. And first of all, I love that as foreshadowing, obviously, to the revelation that she is that she's dead. But I also love that just as a general sentiment of of mental health and and of taking uh, control of your own negative feelings and everything. It's just a very succinct and beautiful line. If you let that kind of poison sit on your mind, you'll die from it. It's just, it's an interesting caution. So, um, like I said, she's thinking about killing Yankees and, uh, 
she says that at some point a Yankee soldier is going to come onto her property and I'm going to kill him. And she says he can consider this the last shot of the Civil War, which I think is just a a really powerful statement. And I love the way that it's uh, kind of reversed or or uh, reworked with Abe Lincoln's scene at the end of the episode. And I also love the sergeant's response to this. He is offended by that. And he goes into this whole like monologue about how he's essentially saying that he's sick of war and sick of death. And he's just saying like exactly how, um, I've, I've got to say, I, I don't, I mean, he's saying what I would imagine Serling must have felt after he was in the war, like dealing with his, working through his post, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and everything. Like, the the words that the sergeant says and and what he says about he's being he's sick of the killing and and sick of the war and everything it just it rings so true and so powerfully um in in the episode that i've i've got to say that i'm sure that serling worked from his own um position and to that script i guess and so now we get the silhouetted man on horseback And like I said, this episode is structured in such a way that both Lavinia and the sergeant have similar experiences, but independent of each other. So like I said, um, the sergeant is, says this, tells the story about his, uh, his father, his past. And then Lavinia talks about her past before the war and her home and everything and, and all of the beauty of the home. And so she had a, um, an encounter with Charlie, uh, Charlie Constable, and now it's the sergeant's turn to have an encounter with uh, one of the passers-by. So the silhouetted man arrives on horseback. He stops in front of the house, and he's completely silhouetted, which I think is just a beautiful choice, which I'll talk about here in a second. So um, at this point, I kind of realized, or I started thinking that this the entire kind of idea of this episode and the structure of this episode, it could it could really be made into what I think would be a really good stage production um, for live theater. I think it could be beautifully done on stage. So the silhouetted man is a Union soldier. And as um, the sergeant approaches him and starts talking to him, we see in the background Lavinia running, like hurried, hurriedly running into the house. And it's clearly it's clear that she's going into the house to get the gun that she referenced. And, um, again, I I just want to reiterate that I really love the structure of this because not only are they having a one-on-one scene, uh, both the sergeant and Lavinia have a one-on-one scene with a passerby, both different, but also similar. Um, it's that it's the fact that not only are they having that interaction independent of each other, but this is the moment where each of them are, each of them is, um, kind of coming to the realization maybe not consciously for Lavinia, but definitely for the sergeant, starting to realize that the passersby are all dead and what the implications of that mean for for them existing there. Um, so the sergeant is talking to the, the lieutenant, um, the union lieutenant, um, and he mentions, like, he, he says, like, oh, I remember you. You were the lieutenant. You and your Yankees saved me when I was injured. And that is just such an interesting, like, that in, in general is such an interesting um, element or wrinkle to put into the, into the episode, because this is the American civil war, obviously kind of brother fighting brother, um, North and South and everything. And 
just the idea of this Confederate soldier remembering this Union lieutenant for saving his life when he's injured on the battlefield is just really kind of powerful um, storytelling and and says a lot about just the nature of the Civil War um, in the context of this episode and everything. So after he comes to that realization about the lieutenant, Lavinia comes out with a shotgun trained on him. And first of all, I love the framing of this. Also, just the camera has it positioned to where she is. She's fully in frame and everything, but it's the 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 shotgun is kind of at an angle, so it just looks it looks much more intimidating than if it were just filmed kind of not at an angle, just kind of like uh, maybe not straight on. But I don't know something about the positioning of it really made it feel intimidating and, and more artistic uh, in the in the presentation of it. So, and and in addition to that, Lavinia is going into this uh, spiel talking about, I don't remember exactly what she said, which is embarrassing, but uh, exactly what she said, but whatever words she used was very poetic and kind of beautifully, beautifully stated. And at this point, the sergeant, um, he's trying to reason with her and then he tries to stop her. He takes the crutch and um, his crutch and tries to knock to knock the gun away from her. And I just I really love this like moment here because it is it's really uh, good, like physical um, blocking in the episode. Um, And it's it's scored by kind of a stinger of of, um, score that really just bursts through the tension and everything. And I just really love that um, just as a bit of action in the episode. And even though he knocked the gun away from her with the crutch, he kind of stumbles and falls. And while he's falling, she picks picks up the gun and repositions it and fires at him. And she says, I couldn't have missed you, not at this range. And he just says, it doesn't matter whether you missed or didn't or whatever. And in my notes, stupid, embarrassing note or stupid note, uh, but he's a ghost. Um, so I'm sorry. Anyway, so um, at this point, okay, I, I'm going to talk about Lost, the TV show Lost. And if you don't want to be spoiled on Lost, um, go ahead and just skip ahead 30 seconds or a minute or so, because I'll, I'll be spoiling the last season of Lost um, in a significant way. And it's one of my favorite shows. So I'm, I really don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, even though it, I mean, the finale aired like 10 years ago. Um, so I'm kind of talking right now so that you guys can get, grab your phone or grab your app or whatever and skip ahead and everything, <laughs> um, because I would hate to spoil it for, uh, anyone who hasn't seen it. So go ahead and skip ahead one minute and, uh, avoid the spoiler for Lost that I'm about to, um, drop here on the episode. So this episode of The Twilight Zone gave me such a very, very strong final season of Lost vibe, and I adore it for that because I, I I adore Lost. Lost is one of my favorite shows of all time, and the final season has the characters in, it's not, people say it's purgatory and they mis, misinterpret it as meaning that they were dead the whole time. That's not the case. They're just in this way station of a, of a realm where they have to find each other and realize like help each other realize that they are on like they are on their way to the afterlife and then the end of the the end of the entire series is them gathering in a church and moving on together so i don't know if lost used this episode as a template at least not consciously or in, or intentionally but my love of lost is really what makes this episode go down really smoothly and and make me feel it makes me feel uh, more affinity for it than i think i would have otherwise Okay, so spoilers for Lost out of the way. <laughs> so um, anyway, 
So after the after the gunshot, the sergeant uh, looks up at the lieutenant, and he that's when he remembers that the lieutenant, when he met him, was struck by um, like some some kind of um, explosive device or something, and he was struck and yelled that he was blind, and he was clawing at his eye, like the, just the 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 kind of pantomime that the sergeant does, and also just the words like clawing at his eye, saying that he's blind, like that is very evocative of just a traumatic moment and everything, like it is very vivid detail and then the episode does something that i was very surprised by uh excuse me very surprised by because um the sergeant brings the lantern up and sees the gore of the lieutenant's eyes in uh, of the lieutenant's eye and it seems like it seems like really gruesome and you hear like the gasp of lavinia in the background and it's just i mean it's 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 kind of gory especially for the time the era 1961 i'm surprised that they could get away with that but I, I don't know. So um, anyway, before we end this section of it or this scene, I do want to mention that the cinematography of having that lieutenant in silhouette um, as he's talking to the sergeant or as the sergeant is talking to him is just stunning cinematography. I, I thought that that was really striking and a really just um, really beautiful thing that led to that shock of the um, reveal of the of the eye injury. And so the lieutenant says, I wish the best for you, ma'am, and you, sir, this too shall pass, this too shall pass, wait and see, wait and see. And that just, I, like, that really stuck with me and felt just really um, kind of haunting in, in, a, in, a, in a certain respect. Um, I know I've been using that, epi- that, that word a lot throughout this episode, but it is a very haunting effect. And it really made me wonder if the sergeant at this point isn't like if he isn't fully aware that he's dead um maybe that's why the lieutenant stopped um for such a long time to kind of help him help guide the sergeant into realizing that he's going to need to move on to the next realm of existence and everything and uh to kind of back that up or back up that kind of claim i guess um the sergeant in the next scene, it's kind of the next day. It's an act break. There's, it's an, the next day. Um, he's leaving. He's packed up and he's leaving. He thanks Lavinia for her hospitality. And he mentions that the passersby stopped coming at night and stopped coming over that night. And he came to a realization. Um, but I also just want to backtrack just a little bit. He refers to Lavinia as Miss, uh, Miss, Mrs. Godwin. Um, Godwin, just a piece of trivia, the name Godwin is a reference to someone that Serling served with in the war um, that he intentionally put into the script as a nod to that man. Um, and apparently the the real person, I don't remember the, the first name of, of the man that he uh, served with, but uh, that man would apparently joke throughout the war that the South really won the Civil War. <laughs> um, so it's kind of it's kind of funny and and cute that Serling um, uh, gave him that uh, that that kind of jokey reference um, in a name on the Twilight Zone. So the sergeant has come to a realization and says that. Um, he talks about how the Union and Confederate soldiers are walking down the road together. And he's kind of come to this compulsion and this realization that he has to find out what's at the end of the road. And the sergeant, like I said, he feels compelled toward the end of the road. And I thought that was a really interesting, supernatural and and beautiful realization of that kind of that kind of um, 
common, I see a light at the end of the tunnel kind of near-death experience thing. Um, it's just an interesting kind of extrapolation of, the, of that sentiment and everything. And so Lavinia asks him to stay, and he just says no. And she says, well, what are you going to find at the end of the road? A new confederacy born out of the ashes of the old one and everything? Um, and I think he kind of shrugs her off and everything. But that's that's when Judd arrives. And this is an interesting, the timing of this is interesting, I should say, because she, it's like in retrospect, this episode is about her reluctance to accept that she's died. And Judd arriving at that moment is kind of, I, I kind of feel like maybe it's the Twilight Zone throwing a Hail Mary. <laughs> um, I kind of wonder if the sergeant was supposed to be the person to guide her into the afterlife or to to nudge her into that realization. But he, I found it interesting that he doesn't really seem to see that as his responsibility or anything. But then the Twilight Zone gives gives her Judd and then Abraham Lincoln. So I don't know. It's just an, it's an interesting um, story in terms of the main character, one of the main characters, um, having to come to a realization of, of what point of her life she is in, essentially. So anyway, she's happy when Judd arrives, and as they're having their big reunion, the sergeant starts gathering his things, and he's um, he's he's going to leave and everything. And so Judd says to her that it was home, but it isn't any longer. He, he references that their home isn't their home anymore. And she kind of misconstrues that as being like, well, it's been destroyed by the war. And so she says they can rebuild. And Judd kind of looks past her at the sergeant. And I loved this. I loved this so much because he says he asks the sergeant if he knows. And the sergeant says he thinks that he does, but he can't be sure. And then he goes about his way again super strong vibes of lost. And I love it for that. So, um, I just, I, I love that they have this Judd and the Sergeant kind of have this shared knowledge that they're not, uh, they're not giving it to, um, Lavinia because she needs to come to that realization herself. And it's just, it's, it's really interesting. And the Sergeant, as he's leaving says, um, ma'am, there's no doubt I'll be seeing you at the end of that road. And I found that just really compelling because he sees what's happening. He knows what is what is happening, what the truth of the passersby is, and he knows what's to come. They, he knows they're all dead. But he also, like I said, he knows that it's not his responsibility to open her eyes to the truth. She needs to come to that realization and, and that discovery for herself. And I thought that that was just really, really compelling writing from Serling. So... um. Then as the sergeant leaves, she asks Judd what's happened, like what's going on. And he says, again, beautiful, heartfelt, poetic words. He says, your life is kind of like a song. You play it right to the end. And when the notes are finished, they die out into silence. And just, just beautiful. It's, it's, it's so, it's so beautiful. Um, it kind of solidifies that this episode is all about moving on and moving on to an afterlife, essentially. And the Twilight Zone has done that in the past. Like, um, was it a nice place to visit with the uh, the kind of criminal guy who goes into uh, goes <laughs> uh, goes into hell? Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. But anyway, um, I think it was a nice place to visit. I'm almost positive that was the title, so hopefully I'm not wrong. But um, this has this is, has such an emotional context to it, though. This this depiction of the afterlife is so emotionally heavy, and and filled with this almost metaphysical, spiritual kind of thing. And like, I'm not a religious person or anything like that. I don't know what I think or what I. I don't know what I think about the afterlife. Like, I don't have, like, a theory about what happens when we die. But this depiction, uh, the depiction of this in this episode is just so... There's there's a warmth to the haunting nature of it that I can't really deny. And I think that it's just really well orchestrated and well well depicted in this episode. So... Uh, we've got confirmation. Judd is dead, and so is Lavinia. And he he kind of confirms to her. He he says that you died of the fever, and she even still even still she won't accept it. And he says that he'll see her at the end of the road, kind of echoing what the sergeant said. And again, just super powerful because this is just leaving it to her, to her own self discovery. And I, I just I love this episode for that because like what in any kind of ethereal or or ethereal, ethereal or ethereal. I'm not sure, but anyway, any, any metaphysical like depiction of the afterlife and everything. Um, it's a highly, highly intensely personal experience. Like everyone does it. Everyone dies, except for Walter Jameson eventually. But, <laughs> but everyone dies, and and just like having that communal thing with the people walking on the road. But also having that just intensely personal self-discovery of the character having to come to terms with it on her own um, and kind of like reaching that conclusion um, on her own to an extent is just is really kind of palpably uh, beautiful. Um, So, yeah, so we're kind of winding down and like in my notes, I have, oh, shit, Abe Lincoln, (laughs) Um, because Honest Abe shows up walking down the down the road and I I love I love this performance. It's so it feels so genuinely warm as a depiction of Abe Lincoln. So he says, "You're staying behind, my dear," and she says that she's afraid. And I thought there was so much power behind this line that Lincoln says. He says, "Of course you are. I am too." And it's just it's so powerful and poignant. This this um person who a hundred years after the Civil War. Um, we see as this almost mythical figure. Like he was, he, I mean, <laughs> it's like Michael Scott in The Office says, uh, Abe Lincoln said, if you're a racist, I will attack you with the North or whatever. <laughs> but no, he's like, he was, um, he was the leader of the country during the most tum- tumultuous um, experience of the, of the country's young history at that point. And to have him be this, like, have this mythical, almost mythical, legendary person of history just admit that he's scared, too, of, of dying and everything and going into the afterlife is just so, there's so much power and and relatability and just beautiful poetry to that. And then he goes on to quote Shakespeare from, uh, oh, God, I think it was Julius Caesar. I'm not sure. But then he says that he's the last casualty of the Civil War, which beautiful writing from Serling, just absolutely beautiful because it is it's it's reworking um, the 
the line that Lavinia said early in the episode saying that uh, the the Union soldier that she is going to kill is going to be as a vengeful thing. Not even not even the person who killed her husband, just any any Union soldier. Um, He's going to be it's going to be the last shot of the Civil War. Um, and to have Lincoln kind of recontextualize that sentiment as him just saying that he's the last casualty of the Civil War, that now it's giving the sense of finality uh, the same way that Lavinia's kind of threat does, but in a more um, in a more kind of emotionally resonant way. Um, just saying that I'm the last casualty of the Civil War, that's concluding the Civil War, and that's when, you know, reconstruction and rebuilding and everything can actually begin. And then he says, and I'm the last man on this road. And this is signaling to um, to Lavinia that, you know, uh, she needs to uh, run along <laughs> to the end of the road Um into the afterlife and everything because he is the caboose. He's, he's bringing up the, bringing up the rear. And, uh, I don't know. I just thought it was really beautiful and poignant and, and it resonates with her because she runs after Judd. And I just thought that was a really beautiful and poignant ending. And yeah. And I'm going to go ahead and play the closing narration from Rod Serling. Incident on a dirt road during the month of April, the year 1865. As we've already pointed out, it's a road that won't be found on a map, but it's one of many that lead in and out of the Twilight Zone. And I think that's a really beautiful and poignant and succinct, um, maybe not poignant, but really beautiful and succinct uh, closing narration from Serling. Um, Because we don't need much. There's enough emotional weight in the actual episode to to not have it be kind of... um, Re, um, restated in a kind of a more verbose closing narration. So I appreciate it for that. So I've mentioned some trivia and everything throughout throughout the episode. One thing that I didn't mention um, is that elements of this episode were remade in an episode of the 2002 revival of The Twilight Zone. That title, the title of that episode was Homecoming. And in that episode, a soldier returns from Iraq to repair his relationship with his son. Um, the soldier is played by Gil Bellows. And the son is played by Penn Badgley, who I believe is on um, that show You on Netflix. Um, and Gil Bellows, of course, was in Shawshank Redemption. And uh, also, um, you might also like from the 2019 Twilight Zone season, the series finale of the CBS All Access Twilight Zone. Um, that's really all the trivia that I have overall. You know, honestly, I was prepared going into this review. I was prepared to just kind of say like I said earlier in this episode, that this was a middle-of-the-road Twilight Zone episode. And I think in talking it out and talking out the themes and the kind of heaviness of the episode and, and the resonance of it as well, it, like I said, it has really elevated this episode for me and really makes it stand out from the pack as as a pretty strong episode. Like I said, it's it's not going to rank as high as The Obsolete Man or The Monsters Do on Maple Street or The Shelter or any or, or the last flight for that matter god i love the last flight but um <laughs> but it's still it's still a very compelling and very poignant episode that has just a lot of heart to it and is just a really beautiful beautiful episode in its own right um with a minimal set and uh but but taking that minimal set minimalistic set and just cranking it up to the max in terms of set design um it just really makes it uh, become a more fully fully rounded episode 
um, really on all fronts. So, yeah. All right, so now I'm going to close out this episode with a uh, with a review of Science Fiction Theater, Season 1, Episode 14, The Strange Dr. Lorenz. So, The Strange Dr. Lorenz originally aired on July 9th, 1955, and the plot summary, courtesy of IMDb, is a physician who is losing the use of his hands due to x-ray radiation seeks out a mysterious beekeeper who is apparently able to cure the most severe burns. This episode stars Edmund uh, Gwen as Dr. Lorenz, Donald Curtis as Dr. Fred Garner, and, uh, uh, sorry, Christine Miller as Helen Tuttle. Also, Charles uh, Wagenheim as Everett, and Hank Patterson as George. Um, so, like this, like how the show is structured and everything, it starts with a pre-show introduction by host Truman Bradley, and he opens it with a pretty big statement. He says, Since the dawn of time, man has been at odds with nature. <laughs> and he does some demonstrations. He talks about how lightning was the first, um, the nature's way of, of teaching us about electricity and how birds were nature's way of teaching us about aerodynamics and how bats taught us about sonar and everything. And so he's kind of using this as a demonstration to lead into how mankind learns from nature and how it's at odds with nature and learns from nature and everything. So the episode proper um, it's, it's pretty good. I'm, I'm noticing, so I'm 14 episodes into science fiction theater. And of course, I'm not going to spoil this episode outright. Um, it's, sh- I, it should be available to stream somewhere online, not on any streaming service, but I've been putting links to these episodes in the show notes. Um, uh, at like daily motion has, has, uh, them. So I don't know, just Google the episodes and you should be able to find them hopefully. But the episode proper is, is pretty solid. But what I'm noticing as I'm kind of moving through is that there's kind of a lot of repetition and it's not, the show isn't really interested in subtlety or, or in, uh, or in leaving things up to the imagination of the audience. So (laughs) when we have like, uh, the doctor um, kind of gauging how bad his hands are in terms of radiation and everything. Um, the dialogue is essentially like, "Oh, I'm I have X-ray radiation and everything, and I'm going to lose the l- lose the use of my hands and everything." It's just spelling out the spelling out the circumstances for the audience, and it's um, I don't know. It it kind of gets a little grating. Also, it's a low budget show and. <laughs> I'm noticing like they're using the same sets and everything for labs and everything, um, which is fine, but it just, it kind of makes me laugh a little bit. So the actual episode, it's, it's kind of, it, it's weird because it's, it's comes right after 100 years young and it has kind of that same formula throughout it. Basically this episode is about uh, the Dr. Lorenz, uh, the strange Dr. Lorenz, who's this eccentric beekeeper doctor scientist guy who has these, uh, has like the ability to heal things that should otherwise be unhealable. And 
um, the kind of the core of the episode is basically saying that um, it's it's having power to um, it, it's it's wrestling with the implications of using your power for um, for the greater good of humanity and everything like using this this thing that you have discovered in this thing that you have refined for the greater good of humanity without properly testing it and everything. So it's kind of a similar vibe from 100 years young because a lot of that story was about how this serum exists to keep you alive for hundreds of years and everything but you have to keep keep using it six uh, every six months or it'll wear off or whatever it's the same kind of thing here in this episode it's like these um the secret to the formula to heal and everything needs to be readministered and everything it's just kind of a, a kind of copy and paste kind of thing with uh um yeah as the last episode which is which is unfortunate but i'm not going to fault it too much because it was still pretty entertaining and everything and kind of on the on on the bigger scale i really like the vibe of this show like again it is about or it's taking the science fiction um storylines in creating in them this uh, grounded realistic hard sci-fi approach to it and they're introducing this element that is like almost has to be supernatural in in content like in this case they find uh, there's this young boy who had third degree burns over a third of his body and they were healed within three hours from this doctor in a swamp <laughs> and um that is a fantastical idea. That is a that is an out of this world supernatural has to be kind of thing. And then what the episode does, what the show does, is it goes into overdrive to create this realistic scenario as an answer to what that means, or or what caused him to be healed and everything. And it's it, I mean it passes the smell test. Like it's not something that I was nitpicking or I was disengaged by or anything. It's like, oh yeah, okay. I mean, I, I buy that. I buy this scenario that the store, that the show is delivering to me. And especially with Truman Bradley's opening uh, uh, segment where he talks of like, he's priming us for that saying that like, you know, human beings learn from nature and, you know, who knows what nature is going to provide for us now. And so the actual answer to healing the characters in this episode comes from nature in a, in a pretty interesting way. Um, so yeah, and I, I don't know what else I want to say without spoiling it, but, um, I will say that it involves bees. Um, and it involves the use of the word Royal jelly. Um, which I, this is completely, um, superfluous to the actual review and everything and it's disconnected from it but i cannot hear the words royal jelly without thinking of the song from um walk hard the dewey cox story um that it's called royal jelly i don't have a clip or anything but um it's basically uh john c Riley's character dewey cox doing this um uh i almost said bob hope but that's not right bob dylan style of kind of song and uh the lyrics are kind of vulgar and the way it incorporates the word ro royal jelly just made me laugh when i heard it in the context of this episode so it's very juvenile very vulgar but check it out it's on youtube um it's just it's silly and, and funny um so 14 episodes into science fiction theater we are getting closer and closer to whatever episode it was that aired the night of the 
Enchantment Under the Sea dance in Back to the Future. Um, I have been keeping tabs on that. Um, This episode aired in July of 1955. That episode will have aired in November of 1955, given the the timing of... um, Back to the Future and everything in the setting, so we'll we'll keep our ear to the ground or uh, ear to the ground in that respect for that. Um, so yeah, so I don't really have anything else to say about this episode of um, science fiction theater except that Edmund Gwen, who plays Doctor Lorenz, he has kind of this uh, this this way of carrying himself that kind of reminded me a little bit of, of Alfred Hitchcock. Um, in a way, I, I don't know. And then also on that same kind of note, uh, Donald Curtis, who played Dr. Garner, uh, looks like he's a dead ringer for like a young Sean Connery, like Dr. No early Bond movie era Sean Connery. I just and that was kind of I don't know, that was not distracting, but it was just it caught my eye a little bit. Um So, yeah. So overall, pretty good episode of science fiction theater. I'm really hoping that the next one uh, breaks from the formula that has been used in the last two episodes at least. So <laughs> I'm hoping for some, a little bit more variety, but I'm still enjoying it. And, and I'm glad that I'm doing these bonus reviews for that. And yeah, so that'll do it for this episode of anthology next week. I'm going to be reviewing, I'm going to be taking a break from the, from science fiction theater because next week I'm reviewing twilight zone season three, episode five, a game of pool, which has a remake from the 1985 twilight zone, uh, remake. So a game of pool and a game of pool, um, (laughs) are going to be my reviews for next week and that'll do it for this episode of anthology thank you guys so much for listening and i really hope you guys um i I hope that the sound quality is okay (laughs) um as i work through it thank you for your patience as i work through the new equipment and uh yeah i'll see you guys next time thank you so much for listening and have a good one And now, here's a short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. Uh, have you have you still not seen Little Dice? I've seen it, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did you love it? Uh, yeah, it's very cute. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would have loved it as a kid. Yeah. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, I was worried that if you weren't um that if you weren't a fan of it then i would turn into a real ice box toward you over it <laughs> totally um because a character's name is right yeah. yeah yeah i love that movie <laughs> anthology is edited and produced by matt hurt and presented by obsessiveviewer.com for a full archive of our episodes go to anthologypod.com slash archive You can also like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod and follow the show on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. 
Official Anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more can be found in the Obsessive Viewers Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at tpublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewer's annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter, at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty! Yeah!